Hey, this is Sarah from the One Life Podcast, and you're about to hear part one of a two-part episode from a conversation we had with Braxton Hunter. There's so much great content, we just felt like it needed a little bit more space to breathe, and so you'll be hearing that over the next two weeks. If you're watching this episode, there is a point just a few minutes in where our video, our battery died on our camera, so the video drops out, but it does come back after a couple minutes, so just continue to keep watching, and we will be back there on screen. So here's episode 56. Hello, welcome to episode 56 of the One Life Podcast. We talk about things from One Life Church, but just ultimately things we think can relate to you and your one and only life. My name is Sarah Inman. I'm one of your co-hosts, and um, we are in a series right now called Centered, and we're going through and exploring worldviews. And uh, there's a couple things that are happening every week, and at the beginning of the podcast for the, the next few weeks and the past few episodes, Brett's been going through and kind of doing a little bit of a recap and giving us a little bit of um, some of his wisdom. So, Brett Nicholson. Some of my wisdom. There yeah. you go. You're All saving right. some yeah, of it for Sundays, but some I of it goes on the podcast. I never knew you thought of it that way, though, Sarah. Yeah. That's what's really encouraging. And today on the really podcast, amazing. we are joined by Braxton Hunter, which will intro Braxton officially here. Uh, Brett That's will right. Here in just a ago. moment, because what we said was uh, during the series centered, we, we want to, first of all, build a Christ-centered worldview. And second of all, we want to build confidence in a Christ-centered worldview. And finally, the ability to have conversations uh, about your Christ-centered worldview. And so on the podcast, that's the main place where we want to talk about confidence and especially conversations, and that's why Braxton here, Braxton's here. Uh, but we just to recap what we've said so far, we've been coming out of 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, where it says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. So have your reasons ready. Uh, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So it gives the manner in which you're supposed to be doing these things, but also, uh, and we even said that William Lane Craig is probably the foremost apologist in the world right now. He said every Christian, he thinks, ought to have uh, five reasons kind of written down literally in their pocket where they could at least reference and have thought it through. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. How do you develop those reasons and uh, how do you use them and that kind of thing? And that's why I wanted to have Braxton here. Uh, Braxton is an apologist by trade and apologist, for those of you who may not know, is someone who gives a defense for the faith. He uh, And he's done this in a number of different settings. He's had uh, debates. We had him on the podcast before after he debated a gentleman by the name of Matt Dillahunty, who has uh, a very large following on YouTube as an atheist, and he uh, is very outspoken against Christianity and the whole message. Well, Braxton went and did a public bait, uh, debate uh, with uh, Matt Dillahunty, and and uh, so we talked about that whole experience and what that was like. And what I appreciate Bra about Braxton at this point is that there's a lot of that kind of thing going on on YouTube and social media, and he's thrown himself into the ring, and uh, because that's where a lot of this kind of discussion is going on. We did say we want to learn how to have conversations, and that does absolutely include our social media behavior because uh, everybody pretty, pretty much is known for not behaving terribly well on social media. So we are going to talk about that as well because that's the world that Braxton lives in as well as... Um, and as well as his other ministry that he does where he speaks in front of a lot of audiences. He is also the president of Trim Trinity. Uh, I keep mispronouncing words. For, I think I'm intimidated because Braxton, among other things, he's not only the president of Trinity uh, uh, Seminary where I am now attending school, he's now one of my professors. So uh, so there's a lot of intimidation factor going on here. And, uh, and, and so he's got a lot of insight on those things. So we're just going to jump right into it. And so welcome, Braxton. Thanks for uh, joining us. Well, thank Appreciate you for having me here, Brett. And 
uh, no, that goes the other way. You're my pastor. And um, to sit here at the desk with you and talk about these weighty issues is intimidating to me. If anyone's intimidated, it's me. Oh, is that right? <laughs> okay. Oh, good. And then Sarah is uh, intimidating us both, I think. And that's, so that's, that's kind of how that goes. I have a whole website of apologetics terms ready to go just in case. <laughs> Which I think is I hilarious. I feel like I'm not literally contributing. Has a yeah. right next to it. And that's we'll great. remember that some of you have, are very familiar with apologetics. Mm-hmm. Some of you maybe not at all. But I encourage you to, because really what we're talking about is these things do come up in social media circles. They come up in, in break rooms at work. Uh, you know, family reunions, uh, your own kids, you can get questions, uh, you can try to witness to your faith sometime. And we are going to be talking to Braxton, especially specifically about dealing with atheism. It's, that's not always the case with people who are unbelievers, uh, but I do have questions around that. So uh, the first one I wanted to ask you, Braxton, was having done this for a while, in a lot of different settings and dealing with people, what do you wish all Christians knew about atheists specifically? Like, what have you learned in, in interactions like this? Well, uh, first of all, I've learned that there are a lot of different types of atheists. In fact, I have a video on my YouTube channel um, that outlines the different types of atheist YouTubers that are out there. And I think that there are broadly four. But those are atheist internet personalities. Um, I think that the, the most of the people that you're going to encounter who are skeptics or unbelievers or whatever, Uh, are going to be people that you work with or who are in your family or, um, you know, just friends that you have. And, and those are normal people. Uh, atheists are not sucking the blood of children. You know, these, these are normal people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, We're we're glad to have discovered that in our research. Uh, but they're normal people. Um, they help little old ladies across the street. They, they pay their taxes. You know, these are, these are normal, good people. And so in conversations with them, most of them are not like the famous atheist personalities that you're familiar with, not just on YouTube, but who are, who write books and things like that. People like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett. These are normal people. And if you can share with them some good reasons to believe, many of them are open to that. Many of them are open to being convinced. Um, And so uh, I think that there is a very clear difference between uh, those internet atheists that you'll meet and the people that you might meet in daily life. And those people you meet in daily life, I think, are much more open. So so I guess the thing that uh, I would say is I wish every Christian would realize is you don't have to be scared to have conversations with these people. You can have meaningful worldview discussions with the skeptics that are in your life, um, and you don't need to be afraid to do that, so long as you're willing to go and find the answers to questions they may have that you might not know about. And one thing I'm curious about with that is, like, uh, when it comes to uh, atheists, it seems like, because I was just having an interaction, this is very relevant, because I just got an email today from a good friend of mine who had a, someone in their family that has gone out of the church and has declared themselves to be an atheist. So is it your experience that many are, would label themselves as former believers back there somewhere, or many of them, is a lot of church background, not much, or? Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the difficulties when you're trying to um, reach out to people who uh, identify as atheists or skeptics or whatever is that they think they know all the answers that you're going to give. And some of them do have a really, I don't want to take anything away from that. Some of them do have a knowledge of apologetics. Some of them do have a knowledge of a lot of the biblical material. And so that's a very real thing. A lot of them don't, um, or the knowledge that they have is very surface level. But because they come from often uh, fundamentalist, you know, Christian backgrounds, that it's hard to 
convince them that you you know th there can be a meaningful discussion that might include evidences or information that they haven't thought of before because they feel like I already investigated that and have kind of closed the door on it. But um, but that's where the other side of this is important, which is. Uh, meaningful relationships, caring about people, and developing relationships over time where you can open those doors. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, what are are there arguments or debating points that you have found typically seem to be compelling to the average person that you've interacted with? Are there certain things because we're we're trying to get everybody to kind of build their uh, William Lane Craig suggested uh, evidences, like build your five evidences and. Uh, what are some of the things that you found uh, that have kind of made people at least be a little more open or thought, huh, I never heard that or whatever else? Yeah, it's an interesting question and it's kind of a complex one. Um, you know, many people will run to a passage like Romans chapter one, verse 20, which say the invisible things of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, Paul was talking about idolaters. And he was saying that if, if you're an idolater and you're not recognizing one maker God, then you don't have an excuse for that because you should be able to look at the created world and see evidence of one maker God. And um, so people will take a passage like that, many Christians, and say, well, then it can't really be the fact that anyone is truly deep down an atheist if the Bible is true. But here's the thing. Um, someone who's not a believer isn't necessarily being disingenuous because even though the truth may be uh, out there such that they're without excuse, there are so many cultural suggestions coming at us. Um, however, taking all of that into consideration and that biblical data, people begin to doubt or walk away from the Christian faith for a number of reasons. One of those reasons might be doubt that does have a moral motivation. So a guy wants to sleep with his girlfriend and he knows that his Christianity is not consistent with that. And so there's a moral motivation for him to reject. Uh, that can be true. It's not true of everybody, I don't think, but, but that, that can be true. Another thing can be emotional doubt. You know, um, I just how can I know there's so many religions in the world and what if mine is wrong and what if these atheists are right? And, you know, it, it, they could, there could be an emotional doubt there. So really what we're talking about here is specific to the intellectual doubt that can happen with some of those other forms of doubt. I think, uh, you know, the truth of the gospel, just presenting the gospel message and loving that person and showing them why, you know, why there's a community here for them or whatever it is that hits those more heart issues can probably be more compelling than the evidential apologetic type stuff. But with the intellectual doubt, I found that for most people, a good design argument uh, is really compelling. Uh, you know, the, the, the complexity of the world, the universe seems to give evidence of the fine tuning of the universe for life. Uh, even some of your famous atheists, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, on one occasion, he was one of the world's leading atheist voices. He wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Uh, bold, provocative yeah. title, right? <laughs> He's got to draw the line there. You got to hand it to him for that. Yeah. And he, in an interview or in a, a movie that's called Collision, admitted that the one argument that kind of gets him thinking sometimes is the design argument. I think because what Paul says in Romans 1.20 is so true. You can look at the creation around you, and it seems, at least, like there's good reason to believe there's a designer behind it. So that's a good one. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah. so what I hear you saying is, and we've talked about this before, and it's kind of a theme, if we're learning conversations, and we know this is, it's almost too obvious to even repeat, but on the other hand, it seems like we, we stumble a little bit when it comes to this. Uh, is always the relationship first, in effect, is getting to know people. We've said, 
you know, listen first, get to know someone's story. Uh, you don't know what their hangups are. It may be they wanted to sleep with their girlfriend. It may be that they, you know, their mom passed away when they were a kid and they just always had that emotional struggle. Why would a God let that, ha- uh, let that happen? I had a, I had a, a young girl tell me that she used to come to church when she was a kid and she prayed that her dad would stop being addicted to drugs. And he never did, and mm-hmm. she just uh, let it pass. And that was a, it was really really hard to answer that, you know. Just, yeah. I can just see this little girl, you know, just begging God to get my dad off drugs, and it never happened. And so it carried over into her adulthood, and that's why she dismissed it. So it wasn't about you know, coming up with some fancy argument. It was more like, okay, that's the that's the struggle that you may have. Yeah, so, that's why I highlight yeah. highlight that um, emotional, you know, personal, interpersonal side of things because there are people like that. Um, you know, I, but it's not my, the design argument's not my favorite argument. Uh, but I think, and I, I, I shared this recently at another church, I think that we need to be able to show that two things are, um, are true for a mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis called it a mere Christian, uh, you know, uh, message. Um, and that is that you need to be able to show that God exists or give good reasons to believe that God exists. And you need to be able to give some good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because those two things are central to the truth of the Christian message. It's kind of hard for Christianity to be true if God doesn't exist, right? <laughs> and it's hard I'll go for with that. That's a, yeah, that's a, seems make, logical. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so you need God. And then you also, uh, the, the, the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. So a Christian needs to be able to say some things about the resurrection. But where this connects back to what you were just saying is. Uh, there you had a situation of pain and hurt in a person's life, um, and they felt like God wasn't there for them. So I tell churches a good reason to believe in God, a good case for the resurrection, and something to say to what is known in the realm of philosophy and um, uh, uh, you know philosophy of religion as the problem of evil. Something to say to that question of where is God in the midst of our pain and suffering. Yeah. You know. So have those kind of in your pocket if you're going to build your five. I you think, think I think those three definitely need to be uh, yeah. in your five. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's no. That's that's uh, that's a yeah. great way to do it. So when it coming back to the design argument, um, like okay, there's I, I agree they're compelling as well. But how could I if I'm just average guy and I'm not going to go to a class or I'm not going to maybe even read a book on this or is there a way to frame a design argument that you could give me that it would go on a post-it note? <laughs> yeah, I think possible? so. You know, whenever the design, and again, the design argument's not my favorite, uh, but it is one that I'm going to ask you what your favorite okay, is. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. I was kind of, that's right. in, in the professional biz. Right. That was me prompting you for a <laughs> second. Okay, okay, go there. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but the design well argument is a good, uh, is very compelling to people. And I think a lot of people think, oh my gosh, I have to know all this science and I have to know about evolution and what am I going to say about that and the age of the earth and all these complex things that Christians are probably feel and probably are unprepared to talk about and unqualified to talk about very much at any depth. Um, and so, but you don't have to do any of that. There is incredible evidence of design in the physical universe, even outside of biological life, where evolution, qua evolution, isn't really as, as much of a factor. So uh, a good argument that someone like you mentioned, William Lane Craig, this is Craig's design argument, and um, it, it goes like this. The fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity, chance, or intelligent design. It is not, and then premise two is, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Therefore, it is due to intelligent design. 
And what he means by physical necessity is there simply is no other way it could have gone. It had to go this way. And the physics is not behind that. It could have gone any number of ways the, the you know, the, the beginning of the universe, um, uh, it, it, chance. Could it be chance? You know, all you have to do if you're a layperson is just memorize a couple of good analogies to help with this. Hugh Ross has a great one. Um, and I think it's in his book, The Creator in the Cosmos. But he says it like this. He says just one of the uh, parameters that is about that the balance has to be right in order for life to be able to form is the balance between uh, electrons and protons. And he says the chances that we would have the right balance is one in 10 to, a 30, to the 37th power, which is a chance of one in 10 with 37 zeros behind it, that big of a number, right? And he says, so to give you a picture of how this works, uh, cover the entire North American continent in dimes from here to the moon. Okay, that's a lot of from dimes. From here to the moon? From okay. here to the moon. Okay, that's and a lot of And then he says, now cover a million other continents, the same size as North America, with dimes to that same height. Then paint one dime red and mix it in to those piles of dimes. Blindfold a friend and ask him to select one dime at random. The chances that he'll get the red dime is one in 10 to the 37th power. And this is only one of the parameters that is so delicately balanced wow. to allow life to form. In other words, it's effectually zero. It's not zero, but it's effectually zero. Well, just little analogies like that or illustrations can be so powerful in showing that to someone. Um, so, so, that, so it's not uh, physical necessity. It's not chance. So it's intelligent design. Intelligent design is the best explanation. To put it much more simply, God is the best explanation for the order and design we see in the universe. Yeah. Well, you can. And is that uh, the Hugh Ross illustration? Is that what you said it was in Creator in the Cosmos? I think it's in his book, The Creator in the Cosmos. Okay. I also have it in a video and give the footnotes uh, on, on my YouTube channel. Not that I'm here to endorse <laughs> youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. That's not why I'm here at all. That's, uh, that's <laughs> that will right. also be in the show notes. So there you go. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the show notes. I had a thought, though, as you were saying that. I think so often, um, even my own life growing up, like when we were trying to come up with you're in a conversation with someone who either doesn't believe or believes something different or, you know, really coming at you, usually your first response is not that type of information. It's usually right. a personal thing that's sure. happened to you or something you're trying to explain. And that's easier to talk about for most people, or at least that they understand, but that's not the same personal thing that's happened for someone else. So having something that's more, um, I don't know, that connects to anyone and everyone would make sense. Yeah, you sense. know, it's often, Sarah, it's often that the intellectual reasons are smoke screens. Now, I don't want that to sound condescending to any skeptic or atheist that's listening right now because for not, for, it's not the case for all of them. And so if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But in many cases, it's a smokescreen. There's some heart issue. There's something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. There's some hurt that they don't feel like God was there for them. And again, that's not everyone. But in those cases, um, what I would say is the personal testimony, the love, love to my mind is the greatest apologetic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first part of first Peter three fifteen that you mentioned to revere the Lord is, is in your heart always, you know, that those are the main things. The reasons that these more technical answers need to be there is in order to pull away that smoke screen if it goes that far. And I think that those are good. And, and also I should say, because uh, the argument that I just kind of laid out can be a complicated argument. And you as a, as an individual Christian, don't have to have a PhD in these things, but you can, you may not be, I think I said this the last time I was there on the show, you may not be an answer giver yet. Like hopefully I am, 
but you can be an answer finder for people by being aware of where the resources are to share with them these answers. Yeah, and and, and it was said, but it does need it needs to be repeated because that is the the position that we we find ourselves in oftentimes. Yeah. And and okay, so you said a, a good reason to have uh, you know why you believe in God, and and I agree. It, it's kind of one of those things that you always want to have. And we were coached. I was coaching evangelism years ago, and we don't do this as much anymore. But always have a two minute version of your story available. You know, don't have the uh, a twenty minute version of your story. Just a two minute that you can you can rattle off pretty quick uh, ready because he said be prepared so the day may come and your your turns up but the other thing is taking it beyond the personal thing it's nice to be able to talk about and why else would you believe that well the heros analogy or whatever else it makes it also it takes it where it's not just me it's it's mm-hmm. where both you and i can look together at something and what do you think about and then discuss that it yeah. makes it more objective now with the resurrection thing because we did uh we did encourage people to uh have to, to focus in on the resurrection, uh, their, their personal authenticity walk, but also the resurrection of Jesus. But the more I thought about that, I thought, well, how could you boil something like that down to make it deliverable in a break room uh, just to somebody? Uh, how, how would I argue for the resurrection just in a simple way that could at least start the conversation? And there, there's a lot of different evidences around it, but even walking into that with somebody might be a little bit difficult. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so Gary Habermas, who is one of the top three uh, scholars on the resurrection in the world right now. Um, there's three, N.T. Wright, Gary Habermas, and Mike Lycona. Gary Habermas create, uh, came up with the term for uh, his, his process uh, that is aimed at that very thing, and it's called a minimal facts approach. And what the minimal facts approach, as you know, Brett, says is, okay, look, if we're going to show that the resurrection really happened, and you're talking to someone like we're talking right now, or you might be talking over Thanksgiving, you know, when you're watching the game or whatever, you, you need to have several facts that you can use to show that the resurrection happened. You don't have to defend everything that's in the Gospels. You don't have to show that, that you know, all, all the elements that are there are all true. What you need are a few facts that you can use to make the case for the resurrection that the resurrection is the best hypothesis for. And so for lay people um, and and people that are not initiated in this kind of thing or doing this professionally in a debate or something, what you can do is you can say, listen, I'm going to use only facts that the vast majority of New Testament scholars and historians agree about. And that includes atheists, agnostics, um, Hindu scholars, and, and perhaps some others. And so you're using only those facts that, that, that the scholars all agree about, right? And we're talking about in the 90-something percentile. So most people say, well, yeah, I mean, if, if the relevant scholars in the field agree on these things, that these are historical events that actually mm-hmm. occurred, then, yeah, we could use that. Okay, well, if you can do that, then, uh, then I, I, give, I give a few. I give, I give four or five. Let's see. So first, I, I would give reason. I would tell them that the scholars universally agree that Jesus thought of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom on earth. That is, that is accepted universally by Christian and non-Christian scholars. So Jesus thought of himself that way. Now, that's pretty important because that means that during Jesus' life, it was as if he was carrying around a sign saying, just watch my life and see what happens. Hmm. So this makes us say, okay, well, let's pay attention and see if anything interesting happens here, right? Uh, secondly, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. That is believed by every teaching historian at an accredited university on the planet right now, that Jesus thought of himself 
uh, or that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. One of the great reasons for that is that the greatest historian of ancient Rome, Cornelius Tacitus, confirms that fact. So that's interesting. And Josephus talks about it, a Jewish scholar, non-Christian. So, but, but you don't have to get into Tacitus and Josephus. So look, scholars agree Jesus thought of himself this way, and he died by Roman crucifixion. The third thing is that the majority of scholars believe that the, the earliest disciples of Jesus uh, had experiences that at least they interpreted as appearances of the risen Christ. Now, that is pretty powerful stuff. I mean, think about that. Non-Christian scholars admitting that these guys had experiences that at least they thought were appearances of the risen right. Christ. Uh, that you know, uh, Paula Fredrickson, who's a liberal Jewish scholar, she, um, she says, as a historian, I don't know what they saw, but as a historian, I know they must have seen something. Right. Because they changed the way they lived, the way they acted, the way they worshipped. It's, it's amazing. And then so, um, uh, lastly, these disciples, the earliest disciples of Jesus, were willing to die for the claim that they had seen the risen Christ. Now, what many people will say at this point is they'll say, yeah, but people die for stuff that's not true all the time. Well, here's the thing. Liars, I'm not the first to say it, liars make poor martyrs. Um, people usually don't die for things they know are, are not true. Well, what about terrorists who die for things that aren't true? Well, here's the thing. Terrorists, some terrorists do die for things that aren't true, but they're not in a position to know for sure whether it's true or not. They may be believing something that's a lie, but they don't know for sure that it's a lie and they believe it. But the earliest Christians, if it weren't true, if it were a lie, they were the ones who made up the lie. And people just don't die uh, for, right. for those kind of lies. So anyway, I think that develops a, a really good case for the resurrection. So to run over them quickly, uh, Jesus thought of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom. He died by Roman crucifixion. The disciples had experiences that they interpreted as appearances. And they were so committed to that claim that they were willing to die for it. There's a lot more we could say. But you could use those simple facts and, and make it relevant by saying that the scholars agree on these things. And you could you could lay out a case just using what I've just said, I think. There you go. You delivered. That's that great. Is, no, that, that is great. And, and that's what we mean by, you know, always be, be able to give a reason for the hope that you have. Mm -hmm. And again, you have your story and you have your authentic life. You have one little, little, one little observation about God and the resurrection itself. And if you have that prepared and it's there, uh, you can pull those things out. And as you get in the conversation, if you see yourself getting in over your head, I love that whole thing of, uh, you know, being able to be an answer finder, uh, just yeah. say, Hey, you know, I, that's a great question. Uh, I, I like to say it this way. Uh, we coach our leaders here. Uh, if you don't know, say so, you know, never fake it. <laughs> just, if yeah. you don't know something, just say, Hey, I, I have the first clue. I'll, I'll, I'll find out. You, you know, might. through our podcast, we just opened, uh, we just updated some of our t-shirts and coffee cups and stuff like that. I'm not trying to hawk that here, but we actually have a t-shirt. <laughs> you hawk the other thing. I'm go yeah, ahead. Maybe, where, maybe. where can I get but, these t-shirts? But we have a t-shirt that says answer finder. And it actually says, I might not know, but I can find out. You know, oh, because right? we yeah, want people to take that and use that. We want people yeah. to let others others know. I might not have all your all the answers, but I'm willing to find out for you, yeah. and we can continue that conversation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and most people don't know there's an entire field, especially unbelievers, there's an entire field called apologetics, where sure. people have written more books than you can imagine on the very questions that you're asking, mm -hmm. and that's very very important. That was part one of our two-part episode with Braxton Hunter. Such great content. We'd love to hear from you guys. You can email us at podcast at onelifechurch.org. You can leave a comment on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening to this podcast. We'd love for you guys to share that out. Let more people hear this great content and have an opportunity to continue that conversation even further. 
Our music was produced by Michael Robertson and Ben Brock. My name's Sarah, and I produced this episode. <laughs>